Well, tonight we're going to conclude our series on You Are Not Your Own, and we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Those three chapters, though though they be three chapters, they really are one single teaching, one main message that the Apostle Paul is giving to these Corinthians about really how we work and how we fellowship with one another. Remember chapter 8 opened in describing that there were certain Corinthian Christians and they declared that they had knowledge. We know that idols are nothing. We know that there's only one true and living God. We basically know what we are doing. And what they were doing was that they were going into the pagan temples, the idols' temples, and participating in the eating of the meats that were sacrificed to idols and all that was done in that. We've talked about that a couple of months ago when we did chapter 8. And so Paul was dealing with that, and his first answer in dealing with that issue is that we would never do anything that would cause another person to fall away. And so his concern is by you going in that temple, you are causing other people to believe that this idolatrous worship is acceptable and you are causing them to fall away from the true faith. In chapter 9, Paul went a little bit further and described that though we have rights and freedoms, we have to be careful that we do not use our rights in such a way that would be a problem for the sake of the gospel. That we would use our rights that would then, that would accelerate the gospel and extend the borders of the kingdom rather than using them in such a way to say, well, because I have a right, I can do as I please. In fact, chapter 9 ended that those who use their rights in such a way are actually disqualifying themselves from the faith and we would not want to do that. Then we come to the final point that Paul wants to make with that. And this again helps us in seeing how we would work together with one another and understanding how to deal with differences. We're going to look primarily for the majority of our time and just be analyzing what Paul is saying. I believe of these three chapters, this one is the most challenging. And we'll have to really kind of dig into a little bit, probably a little bit more than we have with the others. But rest assured, after we get through mining the details, there are an awful lot of relevant messages that are found in this chapter, and we'll address those things uh, at the end. Four key life points as well as three changing points in the middle along the way. So notice how chapter 10, uh, then really a continuation of these first two chapters begins. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Let's just stop right there and just get a sense of what how he's beginning this. By just simply talking about what had happened to the forefathers and talking about Israel passing through the sea and under the cloud, baptizing to Moses in the cloud, in the sea, same spiritual food, same spiritual drink. The whole point of the setup of those first four verses is to just recognize that they had all kinds of spiritual blessings. In fact, what he's doing is saying they had the same spiritual blessings that you enjoy now. Look at all the things that they've enjoyed. In fact, in our study of Exodus and Numbers, we see that quite a bit of all that they had before them and what God was doing for them. 
And yet, with all of those blessings, though they had passed through the waters and the sea and had followed the followed uh, the, the, the pillar of cloud, and though they had this spiritual rock that was Christ, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Notice how this really ties into the end of chapter 9. To use chapter 9, nevertheless, they were disqualified. Nevertheless, they came up short of the promised land, even with all of those blessings, even with God's presence with them, even though they had passed through the sea and the cloud and had the same spiritual rock and the spiritual food and the spiritual drink. They did not succeed. They did not make it to the promised land. They fell short. And that, I think, is is a, a big setup for what he's going to do in connecting this audience to the problem of idolatry and how this danger of what they are doing is extraordinarily similar to what had happened to Israel in the wilderness. So watch how he now unfolds that, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up and play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. All right, let's move forward then. Essentially then I think an important question is being posed implicitly by Paul. Why did they fall in the wilderness? Why was God not pleased with them? And you'll notice that verse 6 says, or verse 5 says, or no, verse 6 says that they might not desire evil as they did. These things are as an example given to us so that we would not desire evil like they did. So first he layers on, they desired evil. And the very next line in verse 7 is, do not be idolaters. Now what's interesting about describing their idolatry is that he doesn't describe idolatry probably in the way that we would expect. Because when we think of idolatry, what do we think of? We think of images out of stone or metal or wood of some kind that people are going around bowing down to. But notice that as he says this in verse 7, don't be idolaters for some of them. As it is written, out came out a golden calf and they all bowed down to it. That's not the quotation. That would have been very logical right there. I would have read that. That makes a whole lot of sense. Here's Aaron going, yep, when you throw gold in a fire, out comes golden calves. You know how that is. And notice that that's not the point. What's the point that he gets at? They ate, drank, rose up to play. And if you remember when we studied Exodus, we saw that it said before that, this or a little bit after that, that here is God noting to them, to Moses, as he says, they've broken loose down there. And we talked about the essence of this is what the people are doing in their idolatry is they are doing what they want to do. They are fulfilling their desires. They are doing what they think is best. They are doing what is comfortable and enjoyable to them. Thus, they're eating, drinking, and playing. They're cutting loose. It's revelry. It's whatever we want to do. That's the essence of idolatry. 
You know, so often what we do is we define idolatry as just this external idol thing. But why were so many people throughout history interested in idolatry? Why is that such a joy for pagans throughout centuries upon centuries? Because the God is made in the image of the human. And what we're doing is saying through these acts that I like, this God is pleased. And that's why usually, as he uses in verse 8, what's the big one that's tied to idolatry? Sexual morality. That's why most of that idolatry in pagan times was tied around that one. Because what we can do is we can do what we want to do, live how we want to live, fulfill all our fleshly desires, do what makes us happy, and say we're serving God. We have this God here, and He's happy because I'm engaging in all the things that I want to do. That's the essence of idolatry. So often we get lost in the external physical output of there's a statue here and don't realize what the heart of it is. And notice that's what he's saying here. They desired evil. Don't become idolaters like them because what does that look like? They rose up, ate, drank, and play. Or verse 8, they indulged in sexual immoralities. We saw the numbers of 23,000 died. Or look at the next one, verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, and some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Do you remember that scene of what was going on when they were destroyed by serpents? What they began to say is, God is not doing a good job. He brought us out here in the wilderness to die. That's what starts spinning around the camp. And that's when the fiery serpents come out. God's doing a terrible job. We don't like how God's ruling our life. We don't like this direction we're going. We don't like having to go this way in the wilderness. Why don't we just get it a lot easier? Why do we have to go through all these things? And notice what's being pictured here is again the idea of idolatry is about our desires, what we want rather than what God wants. Same thing then also in verse 10. And he says there, and we must then not grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. What does complaining and grumbling come from? Same thing. Here's what I want, and it's not going how I want. Is that not the genesis of every complaint? It's not going the way I want, so I will grumble about that. And we talked about that when we studied Exodus and Numbers, that grumbling is not ultimately against one another. So often as we think of it, it is a grumbling against God. We are telling God he's doing a terrible job, he's messed it all up, and he could just come down here and fix all this, get it all right, and get it, get it going, because he's got it all wrong. This is the layout of what is happening here. And notice what the Apostle Paul then says in in describing all of this is that ultimately idolatry is the worship of self, which friends, that's what these Corinthians are doing. They're doing what they want to do, but they are justifying it through various statements. We have knowledge and we know, uh, you know, idols are nothing. We know there's only one God, but we want to do these things. And he's coming now into chapter 10 and really bringing the heavy weight here and saying, why did Israel fall in the wilderness? What ultimately was the reason why they fell? Ultimately, the reason why they fell is because they wanted to live how they wanted to live. And they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And notice what verse 6 as well as verse 11 says. Yes, these are examples, but more than that, verse 11, 
It was written down for our instruction. Why is this in the pages of Scripture? So that we would learn from them. God is trying to teach us about how we are disqualified by living for ourselves. And what I believe then the essence of what the Apostle Paul is trying to show the Corinthians. And I think extremely important for us. Idolatry is easy. When we recognize that idolatry is ultimately the worship of self and the worship of our desires and the doing of what we want to do and what we find comfortable and what we think is best. Friends, how easy is idolatry? (laughs) That's easy. We don't need a physical object to bow down to. We we, we think we've cleared out idolatry, but oh, you know, I don't go out every morning and bow down in front of my car. But we do what we want. And we do what we desire. And we do what's in our heart. And we do what's comfortable for us. And we do what makes us happy. And that's the very essence of idolatry. That's why they did those things. Is they did those things and they thought they were justified by God or the gods through those actions. And see, that's what Paul's saying is, do you see how easy it is with all of the spiritual blessings that Israel had? Most of them fell. In fact, we know nearly all of them fell in the wilderness. Hardly anybody came out of that. Anyone 20 years old and up didn't make it from the wilderness and that all of that that's going on. So this is the warning, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. I love this verse. Great text. Usually lifted out of its context and used. And I'm not saying how it's used is incorrect. Please understand that. But I'm going to shove it in its context. And you'll see that it kind of bends the meaning a little bit when we see what our context is all about. Notice after talking about idolatry, don't be like the people of Israel. Don't fall like them who gave in to their desires. They desired evil. They were idolaters. And this was written down for our instruction. A warning to us. Now the Apostle Paul is saying in verse Verse 12, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Watch out. Watch out for idolatry. Or to put it another way, if you think that there is an area where you have no worry to sin, you better be careful because that will get you. I think that's a very important thing that he observes here. You see, do you understand what the Corinthians are doing? You know, I have no problem with idolatry. Idols are nothing. We can go in and out of that pagan worship. We can participate in all of that idolatry and all this stuff. And we know in our minds that it's nothing. There's true and living God. And we're just enjoying the accoutrements that are all going on there. And he's saying, you better watch it. You think you stand in your knowledge. You think you're so strong. You're going to fall on your face. You think you've got a handle on this. You better watch it. 
And that is the warning that's being provided here. That's what verse 13 is getting at. Is that with, if we would take advantage of every opportunity to escape temptations. And that we would not put ourselves in those kinds of circumstances. So often what we can do is think, well, I don't have a problem with this sin. I don't have a weakness there. I don't have a concern there. So I can walk really close to the fire and it's going to be okay. Friends, how much sexual immorality has happened in the world because of that thought process that the marriage is safe and that would never happen? I'd submit to you 100% of the time. I think 100% of the time that's happened. Think, oh no, I don't have an issue with that. Watch, take heed lest you fall. You see what the apostle is trying to do here. You need to stay away from those things. And I just want us to consider for a moment, for a book and push into the next paragraph. How many times we're willing to put ourselves in bad situations and in tempting situations that we know better that could have been avoided? How many times we willingly put ourselves in those positions just because we think I won't have a problem with it. I am strong. It will not be an issue for me. And then it is. There is always a way of escape. And I think the idea is don't get near it. Which, by the way, if you look at the next verse, cheat ahead, verse 14. Flee. Run away. Get away from it. Don't be tempted by it. Flee from idolatry. Don't get near. That's your way of escape. Is you know that's a temptation. You know that's a sin. You know that's an area of concern. You know that's a weakness. Get away from it. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. You think you've got that one? You don't think Satan's going to try to get you with that? You think Satan's not coming after each and every one of us in all of these arenas? And friends, especially in the arena of that fleshly voice that says to each and every one of us, just do it because you want to. Just, you know, just this once, your desires, you just go ahead and do that this time. It's okay. No one's going to know. No one's going to care. You just go ahead. That's the biggest idol we have right now. Is the idol of listening to our flesh, our desires, our wants, our, 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 all of our wishes and dreams. We're just going to do whatever we feel is comfortable and good for us. Paul says, watch. Take heed lest you fall. Now, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak of sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And in the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the uh, sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with the demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right, let's just kind of sum up what this whole idea is. It is fascinating to me what the Apostle Paul has done. 
So in chapter 8, he says, you know, you going into the idols, temples and doing all of that, you're causing other people to sin and lose their faith and fall away and think there's something in the idols. In chapter 9, he says, you guys say you have a right to do this, but we should never use our rights to cost the gospel anything or forfeit souls. And Paul argues how he forfeited all kinds of rights to be able to save souls. Now, notice what chapter 10's big point is. By the way, what you're doing is idolatry. <laughs> After building up all the way of talking about you need to be watching out for other people and you shouldn't be worried about your rights. Now in chapter 10, he just makes the big point here. You are committing idolatry. He tells them the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. It is a participation in the body and the blood of Christ. He pushes it even further than in verse 18 or verse 17 when he says, then we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bed bread. There is this idea here and it's found throughout the new testament the eating together is a participation together and do you not understand when you take the lord's supper you are participating with christ and when you eat together you're participating one with another now watch how he pushes that further verse 18 consider the people of israel Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? The answer is yes. When they were eating of those sacrifices, are they not worshiping? Of course they are. Of course it's worship. Just as gathering together for eating of the bread and taking of the cup is worship, just as the people of Israel at the altar, it's worship. Now he goes to verse 19. Now does that mean the idol is anything? No, the idol's still nothing. But understand this. When you were going into that idol's temple and eating, you're participating. When they were going into those idol's temples and they're eating of those meats, yeah, the idol is nothing, but guess what? That's a participation with those pagan gods and that idolatrous worship is going on. And so he's condemning them for what they're doing because he's telling them that this eating together is a participation together. And that's the whole point that he's getting at here. God is not going to share. Verse 21 You can't participate in the cup of of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Those are worship articles. It's worship ideas. When you eat, you're participating. When you eat, you're worshiping. You can't do both. And so his big point from verses 14 to 21 is you need to flee idolatry. And this practice that you're doing is idolatry. And you need to stay away from that. Now, before he can just end that whole concept, he has to now give some parameters about what this looks like for a Corinthian culture. And that's what the final paragraph then is about. And I'll break them into kind of smaller pieces along the way for this one to kind of help us see. This is, I think, where it gets a little more complex, but I think we can we can move through it. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let's stop there. And the ESV, along with a lot of translations, put the all things are lawful in quotations. And I think that is correct. And we've saw that back in chapter 8. When you have the Apostle Paul say something and then go, but it appears that he's quoting what they're saying. And now he's responding to it. Saying all things are lawful sounds very much like the Corinthians have been doing. We have rights. We have knowledge. We know idols are nothing. We know that there is only one true and living God. And we know that these things are lawful to us. And notice what Paul's response to that is. Yeah, just because something is permissible doesn't make it beneficial. 
Just because there is a freedom or just because there is something that we might be able to say, yes, this, this, this may be lawful, that doesn't mean it builds us up, nor does it mean it builds others up. That's the key principle as found in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Just because something is lawful doesn't mean it's good for everybody else. And what we need to do is do what is good for others. What we'll see in this final paragraph is what Paul is just going to say over and over again is, do you see Christ in the pictures given? That Christ, did he just act for his own good? You just go, well, it's all lawful for me and I'll do whatever pleases me. Not at all. And notice that's why verse 24 is such an important principle here is that we do what is good for the neighbor. We do what is good for others. This is the very big picture of what it means to follow Christ is we're not concerned for ourselves. We are concerned for others. We are concerned about their souls and we will then make changes and live our lives in such a way that is aware of the good of our neighbor. Now watch Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one is an, uh, of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. Stop there. Notice now after talking about, okay, you are wrong to go into the idol's temple. That is idolatry. You are causing people to stumble and you don't get to use your rights and say, I have freedoms to do that. He steps back a minute and says, now, yep, an idol's not an idol. It's nothing. Gotcha. We we still agree on that after all this work. Remember, he said that back in chapter eight comes back to that. I'm not saying an idol is anything. And further, he says, food is food. It's just food. And that's what you have to love there. Verse verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. So whatever is sold, you buy it and you eat it. It's just food. Don't worry about that. And now it's important for us to, to understand why that would be so important. Again, put yourself in first century Corinth. You don't go to Publix or Winn-Dixie or Walmart and just walk in and buy some meat and it not be some kind of religious background. It came from a temple of some kind somewhere. The meat first passed through the idol's temple and now it is being put on sale. Do not go in the temple and sit down and eat in part of the religious banqueting that's going on to the idol. That is idolatry. But in regards to the meat that's sold, food is food. Meat is meat. Do not be concerned about that. But not watch the parameter, verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat of it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. A very important thing that he brings in right here. And he says, now, if someone says that what we are eating came from the idol's temple, now you are not allowed to eat. And you go, now why would that be the case? I thought you just said food was food and an idol's nothing. Again, if your host stood up and said, this meat came from the idol's temple of thus and so God, and thus we are about to eat. Everybody knew the meat came from somewhere. 
But the host is making a big deal about it now. The host is saying, we give thanks to such and such of the gods, and that's what we are enjoying. They are making a religious overtone on the meat. And now Paul says that's not going to work. We're not going to confirm their idolatrous convictions or endorse them. We can't endorse them saying, oh yeah, there's the gods and they came from the gods and it's all great with it. No, I'm not going to do that. So notice Paul has set up something interesting. You can go in and you just buy meat. And if you go into your friend's home or your neighbor's home and you sit down, don't ask any questions. Just sit down and eat. But if he stands up and makes a pronouncement about the religious background of this meat, that changes everything. Food is food. But if he's proclaiming the something as to the gods, that does change everything. Now watch how that pushes forward a little bit further in verses 28. Verse, excuse me, verse 29, verse 30. I do not mean for, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now there's the hard part, isn't it? That's, that's just one I spent hours on <laughs> trying to work out that little declaration right there. Really important. So notice as Paul keeps giving these discussions, he backs up and puts parameters on things. And that's what he's done right here. Now, in concern, he says, I'm not concerned about your conscience, but for his. Now, but why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Here is the the basic idea is that you have to be careful about going too far with the principle that he just laid out. Someone stands up and says, this is from the gods that we have this great meat and we give thanks to whatever gods for what we're about. No, 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 but he can't do that. So you can't eat. So does that mean what the Christian should do then? is before they go to anybody's home or go to any meat market or anything like that, start asking what everybody believes about the meat that they're eating. What do you think about this meat? Before we, before we eat this, I know it's sizzling, looking good. Please tell me your convictions about this. Notice he's, he's backpedaling now and saying, we're not bound by the conscience of others. And I think that is a really important statement that Paul is making here is that you cannot be concerned about what people might think. Because if you do, you have absolutely no freedom at all. You would never be able to eat any meat if it was just simply going to be, well, I need to make sure that everybody's okay. So you're going to find somebody who's going to come up with a conscientious problem. If you have to take a poll of everybody in the city of Corinth before you bought this, this isn't going to work out. It was one thing for somebody to proclaim it and say, this is of the gods. Okay, well, I'm going to show you, I do not confirm or endorse that that belief. I do not endorse that worldview. I do not agree to that whatsoever. But I don't have to go around and find out what everybody thinks about the meat I'm about to eat. And that's what he lays out right here. It's interesting that he moves back and forth with this. You can't take it too far 
But now don't be too shallow with it. Do not realize, please realize that there are parameters to the freedoms that you have have been given. And notice the parameters that he's going to begin to lay out. We've already seen it up to this point in these three chapters. The parameters of freedom. You cannot cause other people to sin. That is a big one that Paul has put forward in these three chapters. We do not live our lives in such a way that we cause people to sin, chapter 8. We do not live our lives in such a way that would harm the gospel, chapter 9. And now in chapter 10, we do not confirm a false worldview about God or about society or religion or things like that. That's what's happening here. It's because if the individual doesn't say a word, don't even question it. What his conscience is about the meat does not matter. That's why he says, don't ask. You go and set your neighbor's home, don't say anything about where it is, don't worry about it. When you go to the meat market, don't worry about it. Who cares where it came from? It is only when somebody else proclaims a religious overtone over it that he says, that's not going to work. You cannot confirm that, that worldview. Now, let's bring in the final few verses, and this will bring us our four big points for what this means for us today. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul, again, is trying to get them to understand these key principles of everything being done, really, for the glory of God. And you see that in verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I really struggled with a great illustration on how do you bring verses 23 to 30 into a modern context that would be like our world. And I submit to you, I don't think there's a perfect importing into our world today. The only thing that I could kind of come up with was this, so forgive its generalness. I wouldn't mind one day going to Jerusalem and going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I think that would be an awful lot of fun. I think that'd be terribly neat. Now, I recognize that this has been overlaid with thousands of years of idolatrous mess that is laid all over it. But I think it would be fascinating because it is a very high probable case that this could be where the tomb of Jesus was. And it would be pretty neat to go see. Do I need to go around and examine the consciences of every single individual that would be in the place of, of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and say, now, do you think I'm worshiping these Greek Orthodox religious groups by being here. Well, but if the proclamation was made, all who enter here are worshiping the Greek Orthodox Church version of the gods and are worshiping all the idolatrous images that are going on inside of there, well, now I can't go in because I can't confirm that worldview. What people think is different from what they proclaim. 
That's the best I could come up with. <laughs> Trying to get an idea of what that would look like in our society. That's what's being done here. See, we have to live our lives to the glory of God. What I'm trying to do is put God's glory on display in the things that that we say and the things that we do. And so that's what I think he's trying to get at with using this illustration for, for them. Our lives need to show that everything must be done for God's glory. That there is no freedom that we can participate in that would cause the dishonor of God. That's why it mattered if that person proclaimed this is from the God because we don't want our God dishonored or blasphemed. We can't confirm that worldview and go, oh, okay, that's fine, yeah. Uh, yay, your gods. And our mind go, well, we know there's not really any gods. That seems like what the Corinthians were doing. Well, we just know in our hearts that that's not really the case, so it's okay. What is proclaimed matters. We can't va- validate false world views about God. And so that is what he's showing them here is that instead we are supposed to treasure God, treasure who he is and show people God be lights in the world, not treasure our freedoms as these Corinthians seem to do. Well, we have a right. We'll do all that we want. Paul says, no, our goal then is that we need to do everything for the glory of God. So verse 31, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, life principle, number one, whatever we do, However we live our lives and the choices that we make and the freedoms that we have and the things we choose to do or exclude to do, we must be making sure that God is glorified through the activity that we do. That it would not be God dishonoring before Him or before the world. Number 2, verse 32. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. We've seen that message throughout these three chapters also. Do nothing that would cause the shipwreck of another person's faith. We must not do anything that would destroy, knowingly destroy the faith of another person. Remember, chapter 8 ended that way where Paul said, If I know that eating meat would cause my brother to fall away, I won't even touch it then. Sure, he knows it's nothing, but I'm more concerned about the faith of somebody. We need to make sure that we are very aware And very concerned about the faith of others. And let me just say it like this. Sometimes we don't think sins are hurting ourselves. And they are. And sometimes we don't think our sins are hurting other people directly. But they are. But let me push the boundary out a little bit further. And that even indirectly, our sins hurt the faith of others. This has been the big deal of these three chapters. There is an encouragement to sin when we choose to sin. We're only encouraging in others to sin when we go about choosing to sin ourselves. This is his big concern here. Don't give an offense to the Jews, to the Greeks, or to Christians, the church of God. Live your life in such a way so that you are aware of the faith of others. And think about how we ourselves in the decisions we make, the actions we take, can lead others and encourage others to sin through our sins. And I submit to you, that might be why there is such a value to the idea of repentance and confession. 
that this isn't like you know shaming people to come forward and say something. You know, if it's a public sin, you got to tell everybody. I don't think that's the idea. The idea is you want to tell everybody. You know the sin that you guys all saw me commit. I was wrong. Don't follow what I did. I'm encouraging you not to follow the steps I was following. I think that's the value of what's happening here is to recognize the indirect implications of while we affect and encourage people either to sin or not to sin. Repentance and confession then is an acknowledgement of our sin and then we do not excuse our behavior. Number three, verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, but that of many they, that they may be saved. Point number three: Do not seek our own advantage. Do not, but instead to seek the good of others. You talked about this a few weeks ago. I want to bring it to your mind one more time. What are we saying to others that's going to help their faith? What are we saying to people in the world that is going to show them God? What are we doing for others that is going to build up their faith? What are we doing in the world that is going to increase their spiritual knowledge of God? We need to be reminded that idolatry is ultimately self-seeking. Idolatry is seeking our own desires. And here is the point being made, a Christian does what is in the good of others, not our own self-will or our self-good. We are desiring evil when we are doing what we want to do, but we must desire and love the ways of God above all else. Seek the good of others, not our own advantage. And then finally, number four, verse one, terrible chapter break, good grief. Chapter 11, verse one, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what an ending to that. How did Christ live? Christ practiced all of these things. There is no greater example about living for others and sacrificing self than Jesus. He sacrificed himself, he suffered harm, And he suffered loss for the world's sake. He told the Corinthians, now, don't take advantage of your rights. Even though you have a right, don't take advantage of your rights in order that you can win people. And Paul then has spent these three chapters talking about, look at what I've done with my rights, how I forfeited them, how I've sacrificed for you, how I've given myself to you, all for the sake of the gospel, all for the sake of your good. And the ultimate message then, is that we sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. We give ourselves to others and we live with that spiritual concern and that spiritual welfare at all times. I hope that gives us a good framework of what these three chapters are doing. Three chapters that are often just put in the box of, ah, just meat sacrifice to idols, but it's really not. It really is a very important picture of how we live our lives, not only before one another and the the thoughts of faith and concern about what everybody here needs, but also a bigger worldview of how we live before the world. What does that look like? What decisions do we have to make so that we are showing the glory of God? How far is too far, but how little is too little? Paul just hits it beautifully in chapter 10 about how we walk in this life so that people will see Christ in us 
in a way that we still can live our lives and still enjoy the freedoms that are found in Christ. You know, sing a song now, and we invite you to come to the wonderful Jesus who has died for us, who the great example of sacrificing rights, sacrificing freedoms, of giving of oneself, of doing what is in the best interest of others. It's the beauty of what we see in Christ. Paul in this letter exhibits the same thing. This is what I did for you. Friends, may we live with the same God-honoring joy that we consider not ourselves and not our rights and not our freedoms and certainly not our desires that God be glorified in all that we do. Can we help you? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?